Good morning. Good morning. So, piece of advice, if you're ever, like, wandering out in the woods, and you're, you're seeing this huge, angry grizzly bear, don't go poke that bear. But that's what we're doing this morning. So, apologies ahead. <laughs> Pray for me, slightly anxious. So, this... <laughs> This is a sermon that's been kind of heavy on my mind since at least 2015, and it's been something I've been mulling over, thinking through, and it's something that I think is incredibly relevant, but I also think that it's incredibly difficult to think about. It's incredibly hard to work through, and so as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what if we frame this by starting with the end in mind? One of my friends recently uh, he, he took a new pastoral job at a new church, and, and his first series there was begin with the end in mind, and this is a phrase you've probably heard before. So today, let's begin with the end in mind. The end is Revelation chapter 21. So if you want to turn with me, Revelation chapter 21. Single revelation, don't add an S. I say that every time. Don't do it. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The old order of things has passed away. So the question is, what is the old order of things? And Revelation is great as a framing book for our theology because it helps us to understand where is God taking this big bus? Where is he taking the train? Where does he want to end up? What is this whole project about for God? So in order to understand that, we need to go back. John chapter 12. This may seem strange, right? We're, we're jumping ahead in the story. And so next week we're going to be starting this seven signs of new creation in John. And we're going to be looking at the miracle stories in John and how they, how they show the kind of kingdom that, that Jesus wants to build, the kind of kingdom God is, is making on this earth. But today, as a part of the foundation for understanding why that matters, I think we have to understand where Jesus is going. So start here in John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. 
Look how the whole world has gone after him. So we've got these huge crowds. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and these huge crowds gather to welcome him and they celebrate him coming there. They're so excited to see him and they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Turn with me to John chapter 18. Short amount of time has passed here. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas. The Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate, the governor from Rome, came out to them and said, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Obviously, right? Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? (laughs) Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? (laughs) It's so cold to me. He's just so, he, uh, whenever, so like when a basketball player is really good at shooting free throws under pressure, they say they're cold-blooded. I just picture Jesus like that. He is just completely cold and composed here. Uh, Oh yeah, Pilate, you're the governor of Rome and you have the entire world's largest military behind you. Is that your idea or did somebody else talk to you about me? (laughs) I love it. I love the courage. I love the composure that he seems to have. Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Ah, what is truth? retorted Pilate. This he went out to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release for you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, 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 not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Very next chapter, Jesus talking to Pilate, and he says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And I I just love the courage and the composure. He's standing against all the powers arrayed against him in the entire world, and he's calm and composed. And so I have always, since I was in youth, I've always enjoyed theology and philosophy. I've always enjoyed asking questions and working through things. And and, and so the, the obvious question when we juxtapose these two texts, John chapter 12, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The people are shouting and cheering for him. They're so eager. They saw him raise somebody from the dead. They know that this is their Messiah. This is their king. They're shouting it out. They're gathered around him. They're ready. And just a few short days, a few short chapters later, they're the same people shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. So one of the things that we used to talk about when I was a 15, 16-year-old budding theologian, we used to ask each other, why 
the sudden change in these people. Why did they go from shouting, Messiah, blessed is he who comes, to suddenly saying, crucify him, crucify him. And, and I would take this to my theology advisors, I would take this to my youth leaders, and I would say, what happened here? And they would all just look and say, oh, there's no way to know. <laughs> and, and they would all say, oh, I mean, that's an impossible, we could never know what possibly uh, occurred between those chapters. There's no way we can know. People are fickle. Crowds change on a dime. So it could have been anything. And, and so to me, this is just a fundamental mistake in not reading the text and not understanding the world of the text. And so as I have looked back, as I have now gone into the world and tried to understand what was going on in the world at the time, it's become incredibly simple. <laughs> it's incredibly straightforward why they turned him. Barabbas was, in fact, relevant for the story. So Barabbas was this guy who wanted to fight against Rome. <laughs> he wanted a war. He wanted to deliver the people of Israel from Rome's power. Barabbas was a warrior. So the people, when they saw Jesus coming in, this is a guy who could raise the dead. Imagine him at the front of an army. Would Rome have a chance against him? And so the people saw this Jesus and they thought, now is our chance. Finally, we'll get to do this. And Jesus refused. So the question, why did these crowds turn on Jesus, is incredibly simple. It's because he didn't do what they wanted. Barabbas is relevant to the story. So this is the first premise for us today. Jesus was rejected because Jesus rejected the expectation of his people. He rejected the methods of this world. Revelation 21, the old order of things has passed away. Jesus did not embrace the old order of things. The old order of things told him to be like the Maccabees. We'll talk about the Maccabees in a few, few months probably. These were people that had a very successful rebellion. This is what the people wanted. This is what, the, what they needed. So the first premise to kind of frame everything for us today is that Jesus was rejected because he rejected the methods of the people of his world. Essentially, he was not going to make things new the way they wanted or expected. A lot of times we think, well, we should just use the old ways to make all things new. That seems to make sense, right? <laughs> not, not in Jesus' world and not in Jesus' view. So, Paul would later point this out as well. He would say, for though we live in the world, we do not use, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So Paul is saying, this is not, we're not using the old order of things to make things new. You're a new creation, not an old creation. The old order of things has passed away. We do not use the same methods as we used to. So, the methods of the first century world were force, swords, horses, chariots. Easy to nail down. The methods of the, the old world were the cross. <laughs> that was a political tool that the Romans used to discourage any kind of rebellion. It was the cross. So, the question is, what are the methods of our world today? What are the methods of our world today? This question started for me on November 8th, 1988. It's a very specific date, right? I was five years old, and I remember that I came home, and, and I guess my dad had already left because it was just my mom and my sister and I. And I got home that day, and my mom came home from work, and she said, hey, we've got something we're going to watch on TV tonight. And I said, oh, okay, sounds fun. And, uh, you know, you had the, the turn knobs and the bunny ears and things like that. And, and, and she pulled up uh, 
we didn't have cable, so it had to be ABC or N NBC or I don't know, whatever else you get on antenna. And, and she pulled it up and she said, tonight we're going to watch election results. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where I fell in love with the election map. I don't know if anybody else loves that thing, but this is where I fell in love with the election map. And so uh, my mom, so if you guys remember this, here they are. Coincidentally, something like 60-70% of the time, the taller candidate actually wins. So we're very, <laughs> very logical in how we decide. So, <laughs> so, my mom, so my mom is saying, hey, we're going to watch this. And, and me being a fine citizen of the United States, I said, all right, mom, well, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And she said, George Bush is the good guy. And look at the other guy. He's obviously a bad guy. <laughs> and I remember thinking, yeah, whew. Those eyebrows look like a villain. <laughs> I know. I was well informed. So, <laughs> and it's funny, you may be thinking, how do I remember something from when I was five years old this clearly? I was trying to think back a few months ago. I was trying to think back to my first memory that I could remember, and I think this might have been it. And I'll tell you why, because my sister and I, we created a cheer for <laughs> politics need cheerleaders. <laughs> so we created a cheer and you guys may be like, hey, we're going to line you up for some political firms after this. Get in line, all right? I'll give you a business card. And uh, so the cheer went like this. Bush, yay. Dukakis. <laughs> <laughs> so we did that all night, and it worked. So if you need some consulting later, feel free to see me in the lobby. <laughs> and so, so this night, it was cemented in my mind who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. And I knew from that moment, at least 15 years into the future. And so 15 years into the future, now I'm a sophomore in college, and I've gone off to a small Baptist university in Texas. And, and I remember there was this professor there. His name was Dr. Roark. And Dr. Roark was, I think, one of the best thinkers I've ever been around. And he, he challenged me intellectually. He challenged my faith. And for Dr. Roark, Jesus wasn't just some guy back in history. Jesus was a friend. Jesus was somebody that he talked to. And so he would challenge me on all of my theology. So you go into college and you think, hey, I've got all the answers. I'm just here to confirm those things. <laughs> and, and Dr. Roark made me realize that there were questions I had never even asked. And so I was in class one day, and I remember, I don't even know how it came up. But somehow, something came up, and he said something to our class, and it just floored me. And I remember thinking in my head, I thought Dr. Roark was a Christian. And, and so I, I was just thrown off. I was bottom of the barrel. And so the very next class, I didn't even go. I didn't go back to class because I thought, I, my faith in this man is shaken. I'm so deeply disturbed. I was planning to go home that weekend, so I went home. And I went to my grandma, and I said, Grandma, I am loving college, but here's the thing. I thought I had this really excellent theology professor. I thought he was a Christian, but he told me something. I cannot believe it. And she's, she's shocked as well. So she looks across at me when we're having Wendy's. She looks across her Wendy's hamburger. <laughs> and she said, what did the professor tell you? And I said, Grandma, he's a Democrat. <laughs> I thought he was a Christian. <laughs> and, <laughs> and my grandma, in the way that only she could, she said, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> and I said, Grandma, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> She said, I, <laughs> I never told you, you get a little judgy with those things. And I said, 
I just want you to go to heaven. <laughs> so, so in that moment, I had this moment of whiplash, right? And I had this moment of thinking, I thought my grandma was a Christian. I thought my, this professor that I admire was a Christian. What do I do with these facts? What do I do with this? And so I, I started uh, studying things. I started reading things. And that you guys are going to be shocked by this. The word Republican is nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> Democrats not either. Neither is conservative or liberal. And I was shocked beyond belief that I did not find those in my Bible. <laughs> and so I went back to college and I, I entered this time of kind of soul searching and asking myself, why is this so shocking to me? Why is this so jarring? What is going on? What is God trying to teach me in this moment? And so if premise one was Jesus was rejected because Jesus rejected the expectations of his people. He rejected the methods of this world. Premise two is that politics are working to convince us that we can skip from John chapter 12 straight to Revelation 21. Politics are working to convince us that we can skip from John chapter... So, so why was this so hard for the people to understand Jesus? Because Jesus didn't just go from, from marching into the kingdom to taking over the kingdom, right? He didn't just march in and suddenly take over Rome. Jesus had a cross between. And in our world, our political sphere is trying to tell us that we can take the cross out of discipleship. Don't believe me? Watch. Everybody's going to tell you how much better your life will be if you will just vote blank. There is no cross in modern politics. The crowds turned on Jesus for political reasons. The crowds turned on Jesus because he would not fix the world the way they wanted. We want Jesus to fix the world and we want him to fix it the way we want him to fix it. Right? And so when Jesus calls out to us and he says, take up your cross, we think, isn't there a better way? Couldn't we skip that part? And I have to think when we try to skip from John 12 to Revelation 21, we start to tell Jesus, we start to tell God, the cross wasn't really all that necessary. You could have skipped that part and it would have been just fine. But we have to wrestle with the fact that he did embrace his cross. So we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean to us? So why are we even talking about this? This seems like things we should avoid, right? <laughs> People get mad, poking the bear. Don't poke the bear, no matter what you do. Don't do it. But as you know, we're entering a political season. As you probably also know, we never left, right? So, so it never stops now. Every day, you're battered with it, right? This is not end in our world today. And, and so as we go into that, there are things that are going to come up, and we're going to have to talk about it. And so sometimes you may be here wondering, Chris, why didn't you talk about impeachment? Why didn't you talk about who the good guys and the bad guys were? And, and that's a legitimate question. Those are important questions to our lives. But there's a part of that that we just can't touch from here, and, and we shouldn't, and I'll tell you why. So why are we even talking about this? Well, the first reason is because God doesn't need politics or politicians to accomplish his will in this world. We're going to go out from here and we're going to be told why we should be afraid. The things we should worry about. Who wants to do what and how terrible that's going to be for us. We're going to be given all these reasons to get us mobilized, to get us talking, to get us angry, to get us frustrated. God doesn't need any of that. 
he does not need it. Jesus stood in front of Pilate, and what did he say to Pilate? You would have no power except that which God gives you. Pilate is standing there, the most amazing empire the world has ever seen, the most powerful, ruthless, destructive force this world has ever seen, versus Jesus. Jesus stared them all down because he did not need them. We don't have to be afraid because we have Jesus on our side, right? God does not need politics or politicians to accomplish his will in this world. We don't have to be afraid. Second, because our primary loyalty will come into question this political season. Jesus said clearly, you cannot serve two masters. Either love one and hate the other, you hate one and love the other. This is going to be deep in our souls. We're going to have to ask ourselves, who am I most loyal to? We all know Dukakis was evil, right? <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know if anybody voted for him or not. I don't think anybody in the whole world voted for him, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's an easy one. But our, our primary loyalty is going to come into question. Everything around us. We, we talked in January about this idea of idols. The idols are all around us, and they come in the form that we don't expect. And I have to be honest, politics becomes an idol a lot of times. Because we start to think politics are the way God wants to fix the world. God says he makes all things new through the cross of Christ. Our primary loyalty is going to come into question. So I want us to frame it this way. I want us to think about it this way. 2016, this is something that happened. 81% of white evangelicals, which is the majority of our church community, and it's okay to acknowledge that, 81% of those voted for Donald Trump. Okay, so that means if there were 100 white evangelicals in this room, 20 of them did not vote for Donald Trump. So here's the question. Are those 80 and 20, are they primarily loyal to Jesus Christ or to who their vote went for? Can they find loyalty even if they disagree politically? Let's go down the rabbit hole a little bit further. Same election, 90% of the black evangelical church voted for Hillary Clinton. 90%. So we've got a disconnect, don't we? So, so here's the question. If we're part of either group, do we just say the whole other group is wrong? They're all evil? <laughs> is that what we've come to? Can, can we be the same church together? Another statistic. 84% of Hispanic Christian voters voted for Hillary Clinton. So, so what I'm not saying is which group is right and wrong, and, and probably it's a mix, right? Probably it's a mix. Everybody's right about some things and they're all wrong about some things. But the question I'm asking is, can we be brothers and sisters even in spite of that political difference? What would it look like? Who is our primary loyalty to? This is hard, right? <laughs> That's why we have to talk about this because this is challenging. And we have to ask ourselves, is it more important that somebody agreed with my vote or is it more important that they say Jesus is Lord? We have to live in that space and in that tension, don't we? Third is because neither major party in the United States fully embraces the teachings of Jesus. We are a kingdom set apart. Neither major political party embraces the teachings of Jesus. So, um, so what I did is I compiled a little thing here. <laughs> 
got a, a party platform check. So we've got Jesus' teachings and then the, the, the party platforms of the Republicans and the Democrats, right? So what I did is I tried to find some of the things that are most distinctive to Jesus, uh, things that, you know, Buddha or uh, Muhammad or other faiths and religions don't talk about as much, and I tried to cross-reference that with the party platforms. Ready? Forgive 70 times 7. I couldn't find it. It was really strange because I thought, surely... At least one of the political parties is going to say you should forgive a whole lot. Neither of them did that. So that was strange. So the second one, whoever would be great among you would wash their feet. And I watched some of a debate the other night, and none of those candidates washed each other's feet. It was really strange. I was like, don't we usually wash feet at debates in America? It didn't happen. So, so neither political party is saying whoever would be great would wash your feet. Instead, they're saying whoever would be great would shout the loudest. I don't know. Whoever would be great would wash feet. Uh, how about this one? If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Oof, that seems like a strange foreign policy to me. <laughs> but, uh, but that is what Jesus taught, right? And that is what we as Christians ought to be embracing. Turn the other cheek. <laughs> he only said this once. <laughs> Sell everything and follow me. But as far as I've seen, I don't remember anybody in the 2016 election saying to anyone, Hey, sell everything and follow me. I don't remember that. Maybe it happened. I don't remember seeing that. How about this one? Sorry about the alignment there. I, start, I did this in Google Slides, and I sent it to Microsoft. It didn't work out very well. My OCD is killing me. <laughs> so the most distinctive act of Jesus Christ is to love his enemies. We all were enemies to him. He loved him, he loved us, and he gave himself for us. This is the party platform of Jesus Christ. Love your enemies. And I couldn't find that in either of our major political party platforms. So we're called to love our enemies, right? And, and so think back on the racial disparity that exists among Christians that vote in the United States. Do we see each other as enemies? Or do we see each other as brothers and sisters who maybe disagree about important things in life. These are important things. They're not unimportant. But how are we viewing those differences? Are we willing to ask questions and to listen? So, because Jesus rejected the methods of this world, because the cross was necessary to what God was doing in this world, premise three, I will not ever endorse a political party or a candidate from up here. I'm not going to do that. One of the things that happens a lot is there's a temptation to... Uh, to preach to the choir, right? And so to, to get up and to say all the things that you would agree with so we all feel good when we're leaving here. Listen, I'd love to do that. I, I enjoy when I get a chance to do that. I'll tell you, Jesus loves you regardless of how wrong you are about anything. So, so take that if you need a warm fuzzy today. I, <laughs> but when I'm here, in some ways I speak for our whole community. I speak for our whole congregation. And so for me to get up and to endorse a party or a platform, uh, that is, is not the way that this thing works. That is not the way it should work. Our, our founders of the United States, they, they founded the country, and one of the prime beliefs that they held was a separation of church and state. And so what that means, these people were refugees from England, from Spain, from France, and they, they came over, and for a lot of them, they had been told by governments, here's how you must worship God. Here's the, here are the things you do 
to be in God's good graces. And so even to, to the point of rewriting the Bible in some places because the king told them to do it, right? And so they looked at that and they said, uh, no, that's not how things work. We believe that the government should not have any say in what we preach. And, and we still believe that today. This is the separation of church and state. And so it's written into the amendment of the Constitution. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion. But what happens if I start endorsing people from here, what starts to happen? We start to have compromise. We scratch their back, they scratch ours. We start to go down a messy road, and that's the road that led to the Crusades. That's the road that led to the church in Nazi Germany compromising with Nazism. This is not a path we want to go down. We want to keep those things separate. So the institutions remain separate, but that doesn't mean the people do. What do we do with all this then? What do we do with all this? We're entering and have never left election season, right? So even though I will not endorse this new creation message, we'll touch on politics. But I want to assure everyone, it's not from a partisan point of view. There are going to be times we have to talk about things and it's going to sound or feel political. But I'm not going to say so-and-so is evil, except for Dukakis. We all know that. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, so, so, so we won't talk about those kind of specifics, but we will say general things. God cares about life. That has become a political message, right? But it should be a theological message. God cares about life. That feels political because we live in a political age. Our views of faith should influence how we vote, right? We absolutely should, should be in that place. And so my job is to speak into faith, but is not to tell you how to vote. Karl Barth is one of the giants, the intellectual giants of the 21st century. He said, you take your Bible and you take your newspaper and you read both. But... Interpret your newspapers from your Bible. Let me tell you what we've done. I think we've interpreted our Bibles from our newspaper. I think we've switched it. I think we've started to compromise our theology and our following of Christ because we want to win. And that is a problem. Easier said than done, right? <laughs> Easier said than done. This is a challenge. This is a difficult space we live in. So let me take you back to this. This is where we're at. This is where we were at. So all the forms of this world, all the ways that we do things, what are they leading us down? Anybody that watches any television, they say things like, we've never been more divided than we are today. Uh, you know, I, I beg to differ, right? We have been more divided. Uh, I hope we don't get more divided. But as Christians, what is our part in that? Are we making things better or are we making it worse? Are we truly salt and light in this dark and dying world? Are we con continuing to embrace the methods of this world? Are we embracing the fear and the hate? Or are we loving our enemies like Jesus did? So, so, so we've got those statistics, right? We see how the church itself is even divided on who we should vote for. So what do we do? One of the solutions... <laughs> This is what we do, right? Let's do the same thing and expect some different results. Let's try that for a change. <laughs> and what do we get? Same results. We get a Groundhog Day of political nonsense, right? So what can we do differently? Well, one of the solutions is often, well, we just won't talk about it. We'll just all silently stew, and that'll be great. We'll love it, right? It'll be so fun. Uh, no, 
Can Christians find unity if they have political disagreements? Would the first followers of Jesus have agreed on politics? Let me tell you about two of the followers of Jesus that first sat with him. There was a guy who was called a zealot, and there was a guy who was called a tax collector. (laughs) Now the zealot wanted to put a knife in every single Roman, (laughs) preferably a fatal knife. (laughs) And the tax collector wanted to steal the money from all of the Jewish people. So what would the zealot have wanted to do to the tax collector? And do you think that Jesus just sat them down and he said, all right, we're not talking about differences, guys. We're all just going to live and let live. Quit sharpening your knife. (laughs) Now, they would have talked about it, but they would have recognized that their unity depended on Christ and not all these things of the world. And that's what it comes to for us as well. So again, let me remind you of the party platform check that is all messed up in the the box there. (laughs) But parties do not speak for Christ. They don't. It's not their job. Their job is to win. Our job is to help Jesus as he wants to bring people to redemption. Our job is to follow him passionately. And if that means tossing off these old categories of parties and politicians, if it means... So some some groups of Christians over the years have said, I cannot participate because I don't believe in any of these people. That's a legitimate response. It's also a legitimate response to say, I don't like any of them, but I'm going to vote for the one that I dislike the least. (laughs) That's a legitimate response. We should talk about it. We shouldn't be so afraid to talk about it. So, first, let's refuse to allow our world to set our agenda. This is something we capitulate to all too often. We say, oh, well, everybody else is mad. We should get mad. Does not help. Our world should not tell us how to live. Scripture should. Our Jesus should tell us how to live. (coughs) Jesus loved his enemies. Love your political enemies. So first, refuse to allow the world to tell us how to live. This is a quote from Billy Graham. He said, it would be unfortunate if people got the impression that all evangelists belong to that political group. The majority do not. I don't wish to be identified with them. I'm for morality, but morality goes beyond sex to human freedom and social justice. We as clergy know so very little to speak out with such authority on the Panama Canal was that, was that a conflict? Were people upset about that? I don't know. Or superiority of armaments. Evangelists can't be closely identified with any particular party or person. We have to stand in the middle to preach to all people, right and left. I haven't been faithful to my own advice in the past. I will be in the future. Billy Graham recognized that the kingdom of this, this, of this world is not Jesus' kingdom. So he said, my job is God's kingdom. The rest of it is not my job. So we have to refuse to allow our world to set the agenda in this conversation. Second, let's seek to hear and to understand people who differ from us. Why wouldn't we want to do that? (laughs) This feels like a strange thing. It's seriously directly out of James chapter (laughs) 1. Does that illuminate how much our world has set our agenda? Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Do you see that on the news channels? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen. Let's be that kind of people. Third, let's go to the Holy Spirit and to one another to process these complex and difficult political decisions. So, so, so stewing in anger isn't working too well for us. Being quiet and ignoring these conversations isn't working too well for us. What if instead we had creative times where we said, 
I don't understand all these issues. Let's think through this together. Let's talk about what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say anything about this issue? How do we inform one another on this in love? And trust one another. Trust one another. So, so I found out my grandma was a Democrat. <laughs> she was still my grandma, right? And I still loved her. And what I realized is that she followed Jesus and she understood him in a way differently than I did at the time. Let's go to the Holy Spirit and to one another to process these difficult and complex so, so this is the question. Does this person believe Jesus is Lord? If yes, they're our spiritual family. And yeah, there are divisive, difficult issues that go within that. The political sphere is challenging. We should not pretend it's not. But if they say Jesus is Lord and I'm trying to follow him my best, we should give some grace in that. Last, I encourage you to evaluate the time you spend on politics versus faith. So if, if we had to write down, on the one hand, I went to your television watching and your news listening habits. You had to write down how much time you spent on MSNBC or CNN or Fox News. You had to chart that for one week. Then on the other hand, you went and you had to write down how much time you spent praying for our world. How much time you spent pouring over Scripture, how much time you spent reflecting on the goodness of God. Which one of those is going to weigh more? And I want to encourage you, <laughs> that might tell us a little something about our priorities. And if you're spending hours and hours a week catching up on the news, and very little time praying for the people in the news, then your priorities might be a little off. I was thinking about this, and for a lot of you, you know, we're approaching this Lenten season, and, uh, and so for the few, the brave, uh, we're going to have, so we're going to have some fasting packets, so you can pick one up and you can try fasting for Lent, some prayer packets, we're going to have some Bible reading packets, and, and I thought about the fourth one, and I thought, what if we encourage some people to fast from politics for Lent? So what if you disengaged from politics for 40 days? The world will probably fall apart. <laughs> it will completely disintegrate without your superintendence. <laughs> it probably won't. <laughs> but, but maybe evaluate that. One of the things I was thinking about is how often do we evaluate the fruit of the Spirit within ourselves? And so the question is, does, does engaging in these things, does that increase your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your self-control? And you're watching the news station, or you're thinking, I should really love my enemies. <laughs> One confession over there. <laughs> Not too many of us are. And, and that's the challenge, right? That's the question. Will we follow the methods and the ways of this world, or will we follow Jesus who refused? The crowds turned on him, not for some strange reason. It's because they wanted a king, and they wanted to skip this crucifixion nonsense. But Jesus knew to make all things new, he had to go to the cross. That's our call to church. Our call is the cross. And maybe you have to take the politics to the cross. Maybe that's our call today. So I want to encourage you. This is just the beginning of this conversation. And, and what my hope and my dream is that we would be able to have these hard conversations in a way that leaves us all following Jesus in a better way. Not that we're all going to ever agree about everything or anything. 
We're just not. But that we would pursue Christ and that we would pursue one another and we would recognize our unity comes from Him, not from whatever political views we might have. Let's pray together and we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we want to be faithful to You. Lord, we're here because we are seeking to follow You. Lord, that's hard in a, a busy and challenging world. It's hard to do, but Lord, we pray that You would give us grace and passion, give us strength to do so. We love You.